Welcome to World Review Commentary. We're going to be um, calling Alan Watt in just a second. He's going to be our guest this, this evening. Uh, Cutting Through the Matrix is his um, uh, website. And um, he is a profound expert in the field of ideas, world systems, and power politics. He he um, he does so much that um, you know it, it's um, uh, you know he he really is a wonderful uh, person to to uh, to have on our show. We'll be getting him. We'll be calling him in just a second, and uh, he's up in uh, uh, Canada. And uh, I'm going to give uh, my my studio that number. So um, if they could call him and get him up online, uh, that would be great. Um, so um, if they could call him, uh, that would be great, and we'll put him on the line in just a few minutes. We've got some news uh, all over the world. Okay, what do we have here? The RNC's cash advantage. My gosh. McCain and them, they've got more money than the Democrats have. Their cash advantage is, is increasing. Also... What caught my eye just uh, earlier this afternoon was Saudi cleric wants death for TV sorcerers. Now, when you first see that uh, headline, you think, and what's going on here? Well, I thought maybe TV was, <laughs> in general, was sorcery, right? But no, no, that, they're not talking about that. They're talking about people that are going uh, on Saudi Arabian television, and they're a purveyors of horoscopes on Arab television. And they're saying some of the senior clerics over there are saying they should face death. Okay, here's a Reuters article, and it's uh, dated today. A senior Saudi cleric has said purveyors of horoscopes on Arab television should face the death penalty, a paper said on Sunday, days after another cleric argued death for TV owners. So you have some clerics over there that are saying even people that own TVs should face death, and then you're saying some that um, that are uh, purveyors of uh, horoscopes on some of these Arab uh, television programs or whatever. I mean, they're getting a lot of plethora of differing cable uh Broadcast, I'm sure, throughout the area. So they're getting a lot of people over there that uh, that have different ideas. I mean, when I first saw the the article this afternoon, I thought, well, maybe they're just talking about television in general. But I don't think that was it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that was easy to to I guess confuse. Um, you know, just say, hey, my gosh, what is this? Uh, uh, about you know, but I mean it's crazy what's going on Greenspan. Okay, we've got an article here on Greenspan. Uh, U.S. in once in a century financial crisis. The United States is mired in a once in a century financial crisis, which is now more than likely to spark a recession. Former Federal Reserve Chief Alan Greenspan said Sunday, the tallest maniac, ex-central banker said that the crisis was the worst he had seen in his career, still had a long way to go, and would continue to affect home prices in the United States. First of all, let's recognize that this is a once-in-a-half-century, probably once-in-a-century type of event, Greenspan said on ABC's This Week. Asked whether the crisis which has seen the U.S. government step in to bail out mortgage giants Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae was the worst of his career, Greenspan replied, Oh, by far. Well, he recently retired from over there, and so he sort of bailed out at the right time before this thing really uh, hit the fan. Um, they're saying down there in Houston that uh, they're not going to let anyone back in um, for a while. They've got a curfew going, and there's no water and so forth, and so they're, they're keeping people out. 
of, uh, of Houston until they can restore water. And I think there's a lot of different uh, power lines down, things like that, because the storm came in and, and it blew out, um, gosh, it blew out many of the windows in the Chase Tower. It's a 75-story building in downtown Houston. And it blew many of the, on the west side of the building, I believe they said that it blew out quite a few uh, windows, you know. Uh, I just got back uh, last week from the um, the GOP convention in St. Paul. And my gosh, it was quite an experience. Uh, we went up there to do some broadcast, Charlotte Littlefield Brown and myself, and Richard uh, uh, Reeves, he went along with us, and, and he co-broadcast with us some from those venues also, did some fine work, both Charlotte and, and Richard. So we went up there, and uh, on a Monday, um, the 1st of uh, September, we did about three hours out there at the Blaine uh, National Sports Center. Then we moved down the next day, the next uh, afternoon and evening, went down to the... Uh, the Target Center down in, in downtown Minneapolis, and we did about eight hours and 40 minutes down there. Well, we had a really good time up there, but, but after that, on Wednesday and Thursday, we went over to the GOP. Well, on Thursday afternoon, uh, the, the peace people down there, the uh, anti-war people, had a big demonstration out in front of the state capitol. And so we went down there, and we, we, uh, we listened to what they had to say. And then they had encircled us later in the afternoon around 5 o'clock at the time that the, um, their permit, they said, had expired with complete, um, these, well, they're not SWAT teams, they're these riot control police. They had brought in about 3,500 police from all over the, uh, the country, the, the actual, the state, and uh, they had them lined up there and encircled us. And so it was quite an experience just dealing with with that situation. There was no danger, and people could just walk through the lines. I mean, unless you were really causing trouble or something, they just they let people on through the lines. But it was um, it was a it was an eye opening um, encounter and an experience in the fact that to see all of these policemen there, and what were they really there for to to really benefit free speech or who were they protecting and who were they standing against? So, and there are some radicals that that uh, on Monday of that week, which would be September 1st, uh, there were some uh, anarchists that went downtown and broke some windows and did some physical damage to some buildings, and that's that's not right either. But that, that put a, a pall on the rest of the demonstrations the rest of the week, and I think it, it cast a very, very bad negativism on to the general public up there that I spoke to quite frequently when I was up there. I was up there actually Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and I came back early Saturday morning. Talking to the general public up there, the reaction seemed to be that, yet well, you know, we've got... Uh, We've got these people up there, and and they're you know they're 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 something else. Anyway, let's go to Alan Watt. Uh, Alan Watt, welcome to our program. I'm sorry to keep you waiting there. I had to get through a few news items. Yeah, it's all right. It's a pleasure to be back. Okay, man. How are you doing? And what? Tell us uh, what's going on in your own life right now. In my own life, I'm I'm shrinking with all the rain we're getting. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Becoming, uh, I decided to, to become one of the little people. <laughs> the magnificent shrinking man. <laughs> yes, I'll be a little person. And, and I can go and live in a, a little cave, and I won't pay taxes on anything. Well, you don't have and to. You, time, you don't have to eat as much, right? <laughs> I, what, well, you know, a bag of rice will last me a few years. Okay. Yeah, yeah and then I can live in a cave, and of course they won't find me to to uh, to uh, measure my cave and tax me on it. And uh, I can wear green and just uh, live a happy little life, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I was up last week at the uh, GOP convention in St. Paul. And boy, did I have some experiences, I'll tell you. How, what, what, uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from the Democratic National Convention and the GOP? Are you getting uh, any feedback from any individuals online on your programs? Or, well, what's, what's your view over all of those conventions? My, my view is that uh, it's really a show for the public. I don't believe the, the, what's given to the public as regular government to actually do the governing. I think Quigley told the truth. When he said there was a parallel government already working in his day, the 1960s, and I think they really run the show, and that's the big boys. That's that's the ones who um, bypass any democratic input. In fact, he said in his own book, Tragedy and Hope, uh, that we always put our own men in at the top, he said, of all parties. And I think that's true. I I really do believe it's it's more of a farce. It's It's a... a decoy for the public to, and stuff for placebo. It makes us think that something's been done on our behalf. But when you go over history for the last 50, 60 years, you, you, everything's been on in, in the direction of this global agenda, and it's not to benefit the ordinary person. It doesn't matter if it's left wing or right wing. Um, the right wing tends to use uh, what we think of as wars of aggression to take over other countries. The left wing always uses justifications of having to go in and help people. It's the same technique, but this is a global agenda. And unfortunately, as you know yourself, everyone knows this, I think. This is the feedback I'm getting. Everyone knows uh, that um, this UN agenda towards globalization and the reduction of wealth in the United States and Canada is all part of it. We have to basically come down as we... In fact, it's in the open. It's in the charters for, for the Summit of the Americas. The amalgamation is in the charters of Europe, it's in the charters of the United Nations. The wealthier countries were to finance the, 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 the less wealthy countries, the third world countries, up into existence. And in the process, we decline, we go down. And supposedly there's to be a happy medium met somewhere. We haven't hit it yet. We're, we're still on the way down. Do you, are you, have you gotten into communitarianism any? Uh, not, not too much. I do know that, um, well, you see, what they said, as I say, the Club of Rome is the big think tank that really uh, comes up with the ideas of guiding the future and where they want to be in 20 or 30 years. They then hand that information on to the other think tanks and roundtable societies that work it out on paper to find out how they can implement it. And the Club of Rome said that they favored collectivism that now collectivism we meant by that that the socialist uh, uh, communist type of system for managing the, the world society and today they're calling it commutarianism and if you go into the the agenda 21 from the United Nations when they talk about habitat areas what they're talking about is little communities or actually large communities all stuck together where we're all supposed to work and serve the community. Serve is, is the key word there. Yeah. So, so would you say that these communities are, are, is community rights first and individual rights second? Is that the way they're circumventing some of the Bill of Rights and, uh, and so forth, the freedoms? Is that sort of the Absolutely. technique? Absolutely. And that, again, is through all the charters that come out of the United Nations, for, and it's also in all the charters for the, for the Charter of Europe, and it'll be when we get the charter given for the Americas in 2010, the complete charter when the amalgamation is done, uh, we'll get it. We'll, we'll find out that communitarianism 
is the new term. So it's to be service to your community first, uh, or to the world system first. They call it the world state, and then to your own community. Individuality doesn't even come into it. You know, what we've seen is these, these planning groups, and then there's cops and uh, community policing. They're collecting an awful lot of information, uh, and it's going to be used in a political manner that I see. What is your view? There's no doubt at all on that, and they've been very open about it as they go towards the next part of, of data collection. If you notice in France there, they're just passing a law, and the people are fighting it, but they're passing a law to start gathering data on everyone from the age of 13 onwards, and also to decide your personality profile at that age to see if you will become a problem as you get older. So they're trying to spot revolutionary type of people or people that are going to be non-government people or, or anti-government? Yeah, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to spot the thinkers. <laughs> well, the people... <laughs> well, like you and me, right? I guess. Well, you know, uh, you started at an early age waking up uh, to this system, did you not? Yes, I did, yeah. So, so, so what they're trying to do is spot people maybe that and catch them at an early age like, like you were at one time, right? Exactly. And the man who first came out with this was Lord Bertrand Russell. When he wrote back in the 1950s, he said, we have to uh, devise tests, school tests, to catch those children um, who, are, who are brighter and who think and understand. He said, we must then win them over to work for our system and leave their families behind. In other words, you have to cut off where you came from to go and work for the world establishment if you're very intelligent. However, he said, if they cannot be brought over, they'll have to be eliminated, he said, because there'll be problems in society. They could be good leaders. I see. So so this this has been... How long has this plan been underway, would you, would you say? Well, we know the birth of the plan that at least was published openly... Uh, to, towards world government, the free trade system, which isn't free, of course, and the, free, uh, the flow of, of labor and capital and goods, was born in Britain in the 1500s. However, we do know that this whole uh, um, scientific type of, of uh, observation uh, was born in the 1800s with the foundation of the Cecil Rhodes Society, who was given a royal charter to set up a parallel government. That that's the key to it. It's parallel government. They said then that democracy was too slow, too cumbersome. There's too many com uh, competing parties and, and, and factions for harmony. They get nothing done. So therefore, they'd have to set up a parallel government. That became the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the American branch as the Council in Foreign Relations. And Quigley talked about that. He was the, the historian for that society. He had access to all the records. And he, he laid it on the line in his book, Tragedy and Hope, and the other one, the Anglo-American Establishment. So uh, this has been on the go from the 1800s onward, this whole phase of it. And when they set up the League of Nations, and that's who was behind the League of Nations, was the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Um, they, they put in their charter initially that they were bringing in a world where every individual would, would actually be in service to the world state. Service is the stressed word. So, so we're, we're we're creating these little community uh, groups or whatever they might be. What were the were the uh, non-governmental organizations just a, a piece of that puzzle also? Well, what they said when they set up the parallel government is they'd have to have 
You see, everything is done by perceptions to the public, how the public perceive things. And what they did was to, to, to look at the Soviet system, which they helped to create, by the way. Remember that Marxism was born in London, England. That's where Karl Marx lived most of the time as he was writing. Okay. And uh, uh, they wanted a world system of collectivism. So they, they looked upon uh, groups. If you can create big groups of people uh, under different guises, uh, anti-poverty groups, uh, labor groups, all the different groups and, and call them non-governmental organizations. Okay, well, well, let's, yeah, let's get into that when we come back. We've got to cut out here for a second, but thank you, Alan. This is getting good. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Online and on demand, this is We the People Radio Network. Welcome back to World Review Commentary. Welcome back, Alan Watt. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you as a guest. Um, where, where do you think we're going now? Where do you want to go uh, right now? Uh, what were we getting into when we left? Huh? It was the collectivist system. Yes, yes, uh-huh. And what you find is that uh, this parallel government thought they could guide the world and what we thought was democracy by creating many, many groups, many big, well-funded groups, and therefore they set up big foundations to fund these groups, these charitable foundations that we know so well. And uh, from the public perspective, you would think those charitable, those other groups, those NGOs, non-governmental organizations, were grassroots, and most people think that they are. Uh, however, those grassroots org organizations now are the big groups that put petitions into governments demanding that we all go green, that we give up our rights uh, as individuals because we're destroying, destroying the planet. These are the same NGO groups that went forward, well-funded by the big foundations, to have all firearms removed from the general population, another stipulation of the old communist system. And they're all funded, as I say, by these big so-called charitable foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation. Now, there's plenty of videos out there from the Rockefeller Foundation showing Mr. Rockefeller handing out global citizenship awards to big, uh, important players, uh, the big technocrats that we know so well, the Kissingers and all these guys. Now, what is this World Citizenship Foundation? Where does the term come from? And you can go back all the way uh, to, to Socrates, um, these characters talked about uh, he said, I, when he died he said I'm not a citizen of Athens of, or Attica he says I'm a, a citizen of the world so these characters use those old societies the ancient societies uh, into the modern uh, they use all their slogans and titles and formula to bring in a world system where, where they claim the better ones those who are more evolved intellectually those who have attained power uh, through cunning and stealth and acquisition and have held on to it for many generations are the superior types. Therefore, they have the right to dictate to the lesser types, the common people, the direction that we should go. In fact, they are also involved heavily in eugenics, the eugenics society. They funded 
uh, eugenic societies in America. Rockefeller was behind it, the Rockefeller family. So, so they do believe in evolution. They believe in superior types of humans. They claim that the inferior types of humans, uh, the, the majority of the public, are going to outbreed them and, and destroy all the resources necessary for, for the elite's families to continue for, for thousands of years. And they plan to cull down the population. But in the process of getting to where they want to go, they want to bring in world government, which is a, a Marxist concept. You must bring in centralization of all laws, regulations from a, a central body. Uh, then you bring in a centralized culture, a culture standardized the world over. There can be no competing cultures. All, all existing religions must be destroyed except the one they're bringing in, which we roughly call the New Age. The New Age is, was uh, mentioned by Gorbachev in his book, Towards a New Civilization, where he said that uh, he, said he himself, Gorbachev, he says, I am an atheist. He says, but we are creating a new world religion, and it's based on a form of earth worship. And I keep telling people that every major religion has its priesthood. Well, the, the scientists that give us all the bad news are the new priests. So they're going to bring down the population, manage the resources of the world through this big um, environmental-type movement. And environmentalists are NGOs, non-governmental organizations, funded again by the big institutes, which are the front group. They're the front groups uh, that fund the NGOs, and they work on behalf of the parallel government. This goes back into the 1800s. Would you say something like the Olympic Games was a method by which to put some of those symbols out, like fire and sun and, and worship, things like that? Yeah, there's no doubt. It's all, it's all generally high Masonic. I've watched a few of them, and they always use the pillars, the Jachim, the Boaz, and so on, and fire uh, and water. Sometimes they use, they even use the one in, in the French, I think the, the, it was the Italian Alps, they used uh, people dressed with big cards, tarot cards in front of them, because that was the Albigensian area and the Cathar area where the last big crusade took place. When, when we're talking about these world leaders and we're talking about occultism, are they totally into the occult or do they use that for the lower levels? They are into a, a, a cult. A cult just means hidden by itself. And they are a hidden form of government. They, they definitely have their own orders. Um, we know this. We know that when the, the free Masonic societies have been very useful in bringing forth revolutions in the past, and we always think they're going to free us, and then we end up being further enslaved, um, and, and a worse tyranny than we had before, a more sophisticated form of tyranny. And the Masons write about this in their own books. They're quite open about it. They gave us, and they instituted the, the standardized international education system that we have because it was a mandate to destroy the old culture. Therefore, you must indoctrinate the children uh, and get them away from the, their parental thinking. They, they claim the parents are contaminated with old ideas, and that's not conducive to, to a happy uh, world government with a happy world population. So um, they've been very, very successful at that. Freemasonry also on, the, on their major websites are the ones who are pushing the, the chipping and IDing of all school children. They're the ones who started up the campaign to have all children uh, fingerprinted. Uh, okay. So this is all. This all falls in with the same agenda of of IDing everyone on the planet, 
Okay. And, you know, the police chiefs are all part of it too. Would you like to take a call? We've got callers coming in already. Uh, we've sure. got Yeah, let me let me take uh, Robert from Arizona. What's your question for Alan Watt? Well, um, I have a question for both of you. You were mentioning a while ago that that uh, Lincoln was a good friend of Karl Marx, and they corresponded, and he had a lot of communistic ideas he was trying to implement. And I understand Lincoln was a Rosicrucian. Uh, belonging to that mystic fraternal order, if you will. And um, I'm of the opinion that because the British were involved in Karl Marx's, uh, you know, supporting his writings and getting his theories out into society, that they kind of gave us a double whammy because when they were... Um, when the foreign English landholders of Ireland were holding all of the... Uh, most of the Irish lands and the Irish people were starving during the potato famine. You know, there was a tremendous mass immigration into the United States prior to the Civil War. And ironically enough, at least three-quarters of the people that died on both sides were young Irish immigrants. And the English hated the Irish. And uh, I guess Charles Darwin said things about the Irish that you can't print in a book. Okay, Robert. What 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 are your comments to, in response to those questions, Alan? Well, it's even more than that. Uh, the United States definitely uh, was centralizing, and, and the reason Karl Marx telegraphed Lincoln uh, it's in the congressional records. The letter that was sent um, to Lincoln, he congratulated Lincoln because he said because centralization of power was a, a main uh, plank of of the Communist Manifesto. And Lincoln basically was was centralizing all power, taking it away from individual states to create a powerful centralized government. As far as the Irish go, it wasn't just a potato famine. Most of the food in Ireland was being taken from the Irish farmers with dragoon guards from England uh, manning uh, the docks uh, because people wanted the food back. They were starving. And it's been exported to back to Britain and then going across to feed the troops of Britain all across its empire. That was the main cause of the starvation in Ireland. Okay, Robert, does that uh, answer your questions? Uh, yes, and I have one more little question, if, that, if I can hang on until after the break. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold you on through the break, and we'll be right back. Thank you, Alan. We'll be right back. Thank you, Robert. back to World Review Commentary. I'm your host, George Butler. Welcome back, Alan Watt and, and Robert from Arizona, our caller. What was your next question, Robert? Uh, I wondered if Alan was aware that not only are foundations trying to rob us of our liberties, but they routinely, um, it's, it happens so much it's an avalanche, it's like Niagara Falls, you know, hitting us on the head. The foundations routinely sponsor up-and-coming reporters and and uh, people in the media, which then in turn promote certain agendas and ideas. For example, I've done a lot of research because I have a, a background in agriculture. I found out that this corn ethanol issue is a fraud promoted by one man and forwarded by the American Petroleum Institute, uh, forward through numerous what I would call lackeys, uh, people like John Stossel, Walter Williams, and other funded 
and supported by institutions like Reason Foundation, uh, the Cato Foundation, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a lot of these other groups that are all funded by big oil directly or by friends of big oil, like, say, the owner of a pipeline company that transits oil. And so we have these, these agendas that are further enriching a few, and the American people just likely go about their business not realizing that we could be sending our money to our farmers and keeping more wealth at home and circulating money in our local economy. Okay, Robert, uh, what do you, what do you, what's your comments answer to that, Alan? There is no doubt that the big foundations uh, fund uh, these projects and, and promote basically everything that you hear in major media to do with change. Anything to do with change and the direction of change is funded and directed uh, from uh, by these, these big foundations. I looked at the Royal Institute for International Affairs website and they, 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 right on there, one of their jobs, just one of the many jobs they do, uh, they're funding uh, big, big think tanks to do with the coming food shortages and, and how they're going to work that out and distribute uh, food worldwide, which again falls in under the, under the United Nations plan because of the Department of Agriculture, the United Nations, uh, they have in their, their charter for that department, their mandate, that eventually all food will be distributed to by the United Nations uh, to all different countries across the planet and in a, an effort to keep your population down. In other words, you get an X amount of food for that quota of people, and uh, if your population goes above a certain number, you will not get more food. So it's to, it's to encourage people or countries to start reducing populations within. Everything is to be used as a weapon, food, all resources, etc., as far as transportation goes, in this coming world society, which will be here this century, Agenda 21 from the United Nations, they state there that these uh, community areas, these new habitat areas for humans, will not have any private transportation, public transportation only. So we won't need cars. That's the whole reason behind the gas going up and everything else. They want to drive people out of the rural areas into the existing overcrowded cities, these will be the habitat areas for the majority of the public while they're already building luxury areas, small villages for higher bureaucrats and bureaucrats uh, and, and those who help the system. Well, Robert, well, thank you, uh, Robert, for your, for your questions and everything. I hope that uh, answered most of them, your questions. Thank you, George. Okay, Robert, thank you, sir. Chance to be on. Okay, thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Well, you know... Uh, it's uh it's it's a big organization. It's a big there's so many different institutions involved. How yes. can anyone figure it out? They can't get it. It's meant that way. That's that's a good point because the average person will, will look and think these are all independent, uh, unrelated organizations. They all network together, that's the key. And they do have uh, their CEOs meeting together at annual events, annual conferences and they're all specialized parts. They have their area of expertise, and that's what each one deals with. Um, so it's, very, it's, it's intended to confuse the average person who thinks that they're really living under some form of republicanism or democracy. It's just, that's, that's a hot-button democracy, is it not? I mean, if, if you're in a community uh, activist group and they can outvote you by one vote, then it's the tyranny of, uh, of, uh, of the majority, isn't it? It's not a tyranny of the majority. I love that term that's been put out by the other side. Yeah. Here's the key to it. 
Yeah. Uh, the, the ancients, even Plato knew this, because he went into the different systems, including democracy. And he said that, that the elites love democracy because they know they can convince the majority of the public to vote in the right direction. <laughs> so it, so I guess if you say tyranny of the majority, it's the tyrant's majority. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The majority of the public are pointed as to where to vote in every election. And, so in uh, Congress, they buy their votes, right? They do buy their votes, there's no doubt about it. And, of, co of course, it's like, a, I call it a wrestling match. You see, politics is a wrestling match. And you have mountain man in one corner who's going to take away all your social security, etc. And then you have a giant haystack in the other, and he's going to stand up for you and your way of life. Oh, and, yes. And so, so they tell you already who you're going to vote for, and the majority of the public go along with it. <laughs> I see. Now, now, Obama's interesting because he comes out of uh, community activism, and he's got this change thing that you keep talking, you brought up uh, recently in just a few minutes ago. So he's into change, and people seem to think that that's the panacea for everything. Uh, well, you know, the marketing companies are heavily involved in the way the world is run. They give us the slogans, uh, Lenin said, we shall win by the use of slogans. And uh, about ten years ago, they started saying, even in Canadian television on government ads, change is good, change is good. Uh, it didn't tell you what kind of change is, but change is good, which is, a, which is crazy. I actually think it meant pocket change, and I've got, I've got lots of yeah. pennies in my pocket. <laughs> See, I've got a lot of change, <laughs> no folding money. Right. And I thought, no, change isn't that good. You know, it makes you feel yeah. wealthy for a little while. <laughs> you build up big calf muscles. Well, you that, take that a big bag work. of change, right? Pay, yeah. pay with pennies <laughs> or something, right? Yeah, personally, I'd rather they define the change, and then I might think about it. Yeah, in other words, uh, we want to change this to this, or we, you know, whatever, right? Yeah. But but now Obama's pushing that change, change, change. So he, you know, you know what I found uh, discouraging at the uh, Republican convention in St. Paul was that people are just they just this cult of personality. Boy, that's yes. operative, is it not? At the Democrats and the Republican conventions. Well, uh, so many good authors and and people who have written books about the technique of creating personality for the public. Uh, it is true that there's nothing real about these people that we know of. All we're given is, is the representation of the marketing boys, the, the PR men. They create the images for them. They could get anybody off the street, to be honest with you, and give them a fictitious history, have them read the scripts, teach them a, some deportment for the cameras. That's all you have to do. It's an acting show for the public. But we do know that Obama, as you say, came from an, activation, an activist family. His mother was heavily into uh, social activism for change. I think she was bred for the part, actually. And she did come out of a particular church sect, which was famous for that. Uh, they, they sent people across the planet to, to bring in a sort of globalized... Well, like system. change agents. Or is that a common word in, uh, in, all, in the vernacular in all of these different organizations? Change agents. They're change agents. That's the that's the global job. architects. You've heard that. Well, that's above the change agents. Okay, change <laughs> agents don't know much. Yeah. Okay, so so there's a pecking order here. There's there's global architects. There's change agents. There's whatever. Yeah. I mean, gosh, it, it gets it gets to be where the organizations are so big, it's hard to figure out all the connections, the interconnections. Is that it? It is. However, do you remember when Bill Clinton was in trouble with his smoking habits in the in the Oval Office. Yes. And uh, he did not come out to apologize to the American people right away. 
uh, he, it was in newspapers, he, he first had to go uh, and talk and explain himself to the Council on Foreign Relations. That's never been explained to the people why. Really? Yeah. So yeah, he, so, he, so why, see, there's a key, uh, okay. uh, as I say, Quigley said this, he says the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Okay. He, he said that they are a, a big part of the parallel government that really runs the show. Yeah. I see. The, um, right now, we're, how far along is this whole plan and how, far, how advanced are they on this? How close are they to perfecting this? Very close, in fact. Whatever the public is given as mainstream news to do with science, uh, anything like that, is, it's obsolete. We are living in the past, in a sense. They already have the information society set up for, for total data collection. Uh, 9-11 was the kickoff to give them the permission to themselves to do all of this. And it was a worldwide effort, already pre-planned. We all went into action at the same time in every country, passed the same laws. And now we have a global society sharing total information on every individual. Oh, my gosh. we got to cut away here for another break, and then we'll be right back and finish out this uh, first hour. Thank you, Alan. to We the People Radio Network. Welcome back to World Review Commentary. I'm your host, George Butler. Welcome back, Alan Wine. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You know, Alan, when I was sitting in that arena, the um, the Exhale Energy Center in St. Paul, and all those fifteen or 20,000 people were screaming for McCain or screaming for, for pollen, you know what I mean? What? Yep. How? That is powerful news in mainline press, is it not? How does that sure. reach those people? At what level? It's... Um you, you, I think George Orwell probably explained it better in his book 1984 uh, than anyone else. And he talked about, and Animal Farm too, Animal Farm, he talks about the fact you always got to get a, a bulk of the cheerers, he called them the sheep, uh, two legs good, four legs bad, and then they reverse the, the saying halfway through and the, the sheep don't even notice. But uh, you, you've always got this fanatical group who truly think they're part of a system and they think they're the winners within that system uh, they have no idea outside of it what's really going on themselves uh, but they are the fanatics uh, who live in a very narrow viewed world and they're technically ignorant of the bigger picture but it's necessary to have these people big, or big organizations and followers uh, to deceive the bulk of the population that's the key to it um, they're just to, to me they're just another form of non-governmental organization uh, the key, as Mark said, is you must create mass movements, and mass movements is, uh, is very, very important. And once, you, in fact, they encourage that—the creation of mass movements. Once you do that, you simply put your own man at the top, and now you control the minds of millions uh, and the direction of millions. So, the creation of NGOs and mass movements is very, very important to deception and to to lead the world along the path it's been destined to follow. Uh, planned that way by the big boys. 
You know, at one time I started looking at all organizations as cults. Because if you look yeah. at the, the characteristics of a cult, the, you'll, you'll find that most organizations have some characteristics in common with those main characteristics. Have you ever thought of anything sort of like that and looked at it like that? Yes. What it is is it's a form of uh, tribalism. Uh, I read about this years ago, uh, the, the, the whole view of politics, mass movements, etc., and how the elite are, were already using this uh, in their own strategies to, to gain power and to, to use the willing fools, as they call them, to work their projects into reality for them. They use tribal uh, terminology. You'll notice, for instance, every nation has, has its um, creation myth. They give you a creation myth to make you very proud. Um, then they give you the tribal leaders. Now, now you have dynasties of them, family dynasties, so they're familiar to you. So it's the chief son idea. And uh, it, it, it strengthens this tribal nature. And they use tribal symbols. Symbols, you have a flag as opposed to a skull on a pole or whatever. But it's the same idea. They, they use all of this. And they use music that you're familiar with that brings tears to the eyes. High emotion is very important. Emotive qualities in the speeches. And they use these, these ter- the certain terminology, which are catchwords, which, which stimulate the emotive responses that you've already been conditioned with from school onwards. So uh, this is a form of mass mind control, and it's based on tribalism. So therefore, a survival mechanism, which is tribal nature, is now understood and scientifically used against you. So, so it's a scientific, what, um, dictatorship that has been created? Could you describe it sort of like that? Or, or yes. was, it, was it one of the Huxleys that said something like that uh, when he was with UNESCO or one of those UN organizations? Yes, that was Julian, Julian Huxley. How did he describe what, would, what was coming for the future, some kind of scientific humanism uh, or scientific? Well, his brother, yeah, his, his brother uh, wrote Brave New Worlds. That was Aldo Huxley. And he also called it the, the scientific dictatorship that we're, that we're bringing in, a world run by experts. Uh, this, was, this was backed up by Lord Bertrand Russell, who also said that we are creating a world where the average person will be unable to think or do for themselves without the advice of an expert. And then Julian Huxley, who was the first CEO of UNESCO, uh, said they're, for, they're bringing in a form of scientific dictatorship, which will take the form of humanism, secular humanism, and he said that, that we at UNESCO will bring this in by standardizing a world educational system for the children of the planet. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a, a Frenchman by the name of Gustave Le Bon, author of The Crowd. And he was, he, uh, he's a man I've read, and, and he was one of the forerunners, the, the beginning psychologist and sociologist that enumerated certain characteristics of mass psychology. Yes. And, yes. and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a whole planet being mobilized around certain. And you know what I found that was so frustrating in a way? People at that convention or whatever endeavor they're in, they're controlled by very simple little phrases sometimes. How does that, how does that about? I mean, do people not check this stuff out? No, they don't. They respond. They react. Because uh, these are conditioning phrases. As I say, you condition people by showing them emblems, emotional scenes, even in a video or whatever, or a brass band or, or soldiers marching uh, with the music, and then you, you give out little phrases and mottos 
In fact, they train even Boy Scouts with mottos. It's very important. They understand this. And uh, I think it was Lenin said, we, we shall win by the use of slogans. You keep using slogans. That's why advertising must use uh, the, the same term, the same phrase, eight times they've found, a minimum of eight times for it to stick in the minds of the public who hear it or, or see it. So they understand that phrases, the use of phrases, um, can overcome logic. If you look at the feminist era and you bring up some terms or, or, or topics today, they will they will fly off the handle immediately and they will start throwing at you not their own opinions, but they'll throw phrases and slogans at you. So so they're, they're coming from a, a position of what highly emotionally charged programming and they're yeah. just parroting or, or re, they're, they're just regurgitating these little phrases and so forth because they don't have a deeper intellectual or a deeper understanding of what of how to discuss these important issues. Is that sort of the, the response? That's right. It's a form of Pavlovian uh, indoctrination. It, so it's behavioral psychology. I did some research on that coming out of Johns Hopkins, and there was a guy that came out of there, Watson, I think was his name, and he went to to uh, to the Madison Avenue, you know, yeah. there in in New York, and made a fortune of, of of using behavioral psychology techniques on just like you're saying, advertising. Absolutely, uh, and Bernays did the same thing. A very important character who was taught uh, the real sciences. I call it the real sciences which are higher than university level. They have archives of real sciences going back for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And Plato talked about these sciences of how to, to create and cre- uh, control cultures and whole empires. They well, understood you, this thousands of years ago. Yeah, when, when we're saying Plato, are we saying the, the discoverer of the realm of ideas? Is, is that what he was using, the manipulation of ideas to manipulate people? And this is what he was talking about back then? What, what, what was he yeah, talking he, about? He talked to all Plato himself, belonged to the aristocracy of Greece. And he believed in eugenics as well. He, he wrote about this in his book called The Republic. The Republic was based on a future world society where the dominant elite would have full sway, full control over the masses, and they would actually breed the masses like animals. Today we're doing the same thing through genetic engineering. It's all going towards the, the eradication of what they call the inferior types, the commoners, and the creation of superior types. Uh, it's the same agenda, in fact, and it's so interesting to, to compare Plato's idea of elitism and the guardian class with today's Olympians, as they call them. I see. We've got Melinda. Let's get uh, Melinda from North Carolina. You're live on World Review Commentary. What's your question for Alan Watt? Yeah, um, Alan, um, I just came on not too long ago, so I may not be exactly sure as to where the conversation is going, but um, I understand that you're talking about psychology and how it's used to manipulate people's minds or way of thinking. Um, as far as the United States and what you see going on over here, what would be your perspective of how we would stop this kind of tyranny that we're um, facing right now? And <clears throat> in other words, what would be a solution, you know, to, to stop the tyranny and the, the mind manipulation that's going on in our society and, you know, in our schools? I mean, basically to keep our sovereignty and U.S. constitutional life. That's basically yep. my question. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, it's not easy. 
It is not easy because what we've found out in recent years is that the elites now, those who rule the United States and all the organizations that work for them have mandated that there will be no opposition to this agenda. They're not going to even humor us anymore. Um, they've, they've made it quite clear uh, that, uh, in fact, Hillary Clinton said if she ever got in, she'd eradicate altogether homeschooling, for instance. They will have no opposition, no, no ulterior ways of teaching children. They've all got to be inclusive. That's the term they're using now into this one system. The public have always had the ability to stop this, but they won't. The majority will go along to get along right to the wall, unfortunately. So we almost have to live inside our heads and make small, small communities of friends and prepare for the worst. Yeah, Melinda, we've got to take a break at the top of the hour. You want to hold on over, we only have about a minute and a half break, and then come back and, and continue our discussion with Alan? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, we'll hold you on. Alan, boy, you're, you're the greatest. We'll be right back in just about a minute and a half, okay? Thank you, Alan. Right on. 